0: I bid you welcome. For the first time, I have to preface this episode with a trigger warning. Our main story contains a description of animal cruelty, and I don't know that I can do anything to help you feel better about that. I include it for its historical interests. This is it. This is the real thing. You've heard about it on the radio and seen it in the papers. Ten big acts for the price of one ticket. Behind this curtain, you'll see the Fiji mermaid, the giant redback, the six-foot man-eating chicken. They're all real, and they're all on the inside. You'll see the
1: Ethiopian glacier.
2: Come on, folks. What are you waiting for? Admission is free to Ballycast, the podcast of the carnival, sideshow, and variety arts. You're just in time. We're going to have a free show. We're going to bring out the strange people, the weird people. Here they come now. Watch the doorway. You'll see what they do. You'll hear what they talk about. They're all alive on the inside. Get your ticket and come in. Ballycast presents news and interviews with performers and showmen. Some important words of warning. This podcast is not family friendly. I'm not even thinking about it. So listen at your own risk. The performances and stunts described are not safe, even for experienced performers. Never attempt them without the direct supervision of someone who already performs them. Please use your common sense. And if you don't have any, stop listening now. Here's your host, Wayne Kaiser.
0: Welcome to Ballycast, episode 144. Ballycast is brought to you free by Blue Ridge Entertainment, publisher of books, CDs, DVDs, and more for showmen, performers, and fans of the sideshow, carnival, and variety arts. The feature segment of today's show, we're going back with Nikolai Gogol to Coney Island. I know we've been there a lot, but this will be an amazing trip into a depressing past. Yes, he found it boring and depressing, and more than a little disgusting. Also, news and much more. Able to leap tall buildings with a single bound, it's Ballycast. Here we go. Keep your hands and arms inside the car and remain seated until the ride comes to a complete stop. I was going to title this episode, Not Quite Dead, but I'm not quite dead, yet, and it's much too nice today. So with that, let there be birds chirping in the sunny yard. The Unicorn in the Garden by James Thurber Once upon a sunny morning, a man who sat in a breakfast nook looked up from his scrambled eggs to see a white unicorn with a golden horn quietly cropping the roses in the garden. The man went up to the bedroom where his wife was still asleep and woke her. There's a unicorn in the garden, he said, eating roses. She opened one unfriendly eye and looked at him. The unicorn is a mythical beast, she said, and turned her back on him. The man walked slowly downstairs and out into the garden. The unicorn was still there. He was now browsing among the tulips. Here, unicorn, said the man, and pulled up a lily and gave it to him. The unicorn ate it gravely. With a high heart, because there was a unicorn in his garden, the man went upstairs and roused his wife again. The unicorn, he said, ate a lily. His wife sat up in bed and looked at him coldly.
2: You are a booby, she said. I'm going to have you put in a booby
0: hatch. The man, who never liked the words booby and booby hatch, and who liked them even less on a shining morning when there was a unicorn in the garden, thought for a moment. "'We'll see about that,' he said. He walked over to the door. "'He has a golden horn in the middle of his forehead,' he told her. Then he went back to the garden to watch the unicorn.' But the unicorn had gone away. The man sat among the roses and went to sleep. And as soon as the husband had gone out of the house, the wife got up and dressed as fast as she could. She was very excited, and there was a gloat in her eye. She telephoned the police, and she telephoned the psychiatrist. She told them to hurry to her house. And bring a straitjacket. <laughs> then the police and the psychiatrist looked at her with great interest. Mm. My husband saw a unicorn this morning, she said. The police looked at the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist looked at the police.
2: Hmm. He told me it ate a lily,
0: she said. The psychiatrist looked at the police and the police looked at the psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. At a solemn signal from the psychiatrist, the police leaped from their chairs and seized the wife. They had a hard time subduing her for she put up a terrific struggle, but they finally subdued her. Just as they got her into the straitjacket, The husband came back into the house. Did you tell your wife you saw a unicorn, asked the police. Of course not, said the husband. The unicorn is a mythical beast. Hmm. That's all I wanted to know, said the psychiatrist. Take her away. I'm sorry, sir, but your wife is as crazy as a jaybird. So they took her away. (coughs) cursing and screaming, and shut her up in an institution. The husband lived happily ever after. Moral? Don't count your boobies until they're hatched. And speaking of animals, animal rights activists can now officially stand down. I have obtained a secret hidden camera photograph of a circus employee Changing the oil in an elephant. You can see it on the podcast episode webpage at ballycast.com. Luna Park and Dreamland on Coney Island in 1903, World's Fairs of 1939. 62 and 65. These places are the stuff of dreams. All of them vanished long ago. But now you can visit them, many in vivid color. Long gone performers and attractions in The Carnival's Been and Gone, a two and a half hour DVD that lets you shoot the shoots at Coney Island a hundred years ago. Ride the rides at Luna Park and Chase when they lit up the night with wonder. Ride the Parachute Jump. The Silver Streak. Actually see inside many shows. See what they're doing in the Ecstasy Girl Show. And look inside four girl shows, all in sparkling color.
1: Now I can stand out here. And tell you that on the inside we have shake dancers, oriental dancers, exotic dancers, the little lady that does the dance of temptation. <laughs> you boys that have been to the Hudson Theater in New Jersey, you know what I'm talking about. Eh?
0: You'll see the human automobile tire and the man who hangs himself. Zip and Pip, the pinheads. Princess Lala, the fat lady. Albert Alberta, the half man, half woman.
3: The strangest
0: sights on the island. Bricks from the four corners of the world. What two nickels, one dime, a tenth part of a dollar, we've got the show if you've got the dime. It's just starting. So hurry, hurry, look them over the lady without a head. They're all inside. These places have vanished, but you've heard about them all your life. The films have been rescued and restored. Shaky images stabilized. Faded color brought back to vivid life. Shot by people who were there in the glory days of legendary amusements. This is no idle tour of high-minded cultural exhibits. You'll see Billy Rose's Aquacade. Nature's greatest mistakes. The Midget City. Watch Gully Gully, King of Magic. And the Wonder Mouse Pitchman. Dozens of legendary attractions over two and a half hours of wonder now at a new low price. Order today from goodmagic.com. In the news, Josh Routh let me know about the Show-Off Shop in St. Louis. Look there for all your variety arts entertainment needs. Magic, juggling, face painting, balloon twisting, workshops, and more. they are open from noon to 6 in Chesterfield Mall, St. Louis event space at 291 Chesterfield Center, Chesterfield, Missouri. There's a link to their website on the podcast episode page. When Jonna Jinton was 12, she heard a song in her home country of Sweden, and it changed her life. A haunting, high-pitched song that rattled the room. It was the most beautiful thing I had ever heard. It was so strong, she said. This was a Scandinavian vocal style known as kulning an ancient herding call that dates back to the medieval era or even before. But like so many things, it's now almost forgotten. Jinton performs and posts her own colding for hundreds of thousands of YouTube subscribers. Once the remote forests and mountain pastures swelled with women's voices each summer as dusk approached, the short, cascading, lyricless phrases called their herds of cattle and sheep and goats home from grazing at the end of the day. It only takes one solid bond between a cow and a woman to bring the whole herd home. Even the Bible says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Once one animal hears the call, it heads toward the source, and the rest of the herd follows. The women, too, take pride in their skill. Traditional music has been revived by those who thrill to its beauty. Now Jinton has quit her university studies and moved with her husband to a cottage in Gruntjan, the remote village of just ten residents where her mother was born. She says her cooling makes many people feel something special, almost as if they were being reminded of something. Recommendations, Stephen Fry's Seven Deadly Sins podcast. As he describes it, I will take each one of the seven sins in turn in an attempt to try to anatomize and understand them. I hope and believe it will be, if nothing else, delicious fun and something of a change from the usual run of podcastry. I'm raring to have a look at the obstacles to our individual happiness and fulfillment, the ones that come from within. You've been looking forward to this one for ages, of course you have. Pride and and avarice are all very well, but they're too prone to being abstracted into into dry generalities. Lust, lust, lust is particularly. Particular Lust is inside us. It, there appear to be more synonyms for it in our language than for most words. Lustful, lecherous, licentious, lascivious, libidinous, lewd, loose, lubricious,
1: libertine.
0: That's just those beginning with L. Impure, unchaste, concupiscent, intemperate, dissipated, degenerate, sinful, depraved... Crude, goatish, sensual, promiscuous, carnal, randy, horny, raunchy, pervy, naughty, nasty. It's not the easiest thing to find, but a link is on the Bellycast episode webpage. The H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, and I'm sure by now that everybody knows about Lovecraft. Everybody whose sanity will not be seriously shaken by his tales of cosmic horror and the many stories by other related authors.
4: HPPodcraft.com
2: It is a month of all Robert E. Howard action here on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast.
1: Where dusky sorcerers weave awful spells in the murk of sacrificial smoke, mounting eternally from blood-stained altars where naked women scream, and where our reader... Joshua Bentley, the old serpent, Wee. god of the Stygians, is said to writhe his shining <laughs> coils
0: among his worshippers, and is also our reader today. Again, a link is on the Bellycast webpage. Todd Robbins has a new YouTube series, This Day in Darkness, a daily short take on the mostly terrible things that have happened on this day's date in history.
3: July 29th. Some terrible things happened on this day. Here's just a few of them. Uh, in 1890, Vincent Van Gogh passed away. Two days after, he shot himself. He was 37. On this day in 1981 was the death of a man. And I have to say I'm very biased about this one. Good riddance to him. His name was Robert Moses. He was the urban planner who really shaped New York as we know it today, both good and bad, especially bad. He tore apart neighborhoods, building highways. He hated Coney Island, tried to destroy that. That didn't work. But he did everything he could to hurt Coney Island. <laughs> he saw that Fred Trump got a hold of Steeplechase Park and tore it down. Yes, the father of our president wanted to build condos and wasn't allowed. So since he couldn't get what he wanted, he wasn't getting of the public what they wanted. And Robert Moses smiled upon him and he tore the place down. So Rob Mose died on this day in 1981, not a moment too soon. And now it's only fitting to lead in with something that will dismay
0: you just as much.
5: He preys on beautiful street teasers and wild go-go girls. She keeps her many lovers imprisoned in cages like the wild animals that they are. See for yourself what happens when The Teenage Cycle meets Bloody Mary. For the first time in a feature-length motion picture filmed in shocking bloody vision, live monsters crash out of the screen and into the audience. You are suddenly surrounded by monsters. You become a party to the horror. You are a potential victim, and no one is safe. We warn you that this is the weirdest, most shocking thriller ever before seen on any screen and alive in the audience. See the bloodiest psycho picture of them all, The Teenage Psycho Meets Bloody Mary, starring Cash Wag, Carolyn Brandt, and a cast of thousands in bloody color.
0: Fun, surf, sun, sand, food, all, all so boring. I mean, what's the point of any of that? <sighs> Alexei Maximovich Peshkov, known as Maxim Gorky, called the Bitter One, was a Russian writer and political activist. And it shows. He visited Coney Island in 1906, eleven years before the revolution. You can just hear it coming on. His essay on the trip features a wonderfully detailed look at the Hellgate attraction at Dreamland Park and, well, some other things. It will almost make you feel like you're there. New York, ever fond of onerous regulations, had a law at the time that only attractions of a religious or educational nature could be offered on a Sunday. That was the only day that many people had off. And so it was the busiest day of the week on Coney Island. So the Coney Barks gave it to them good and hard. I've been wanting such a fascinating description for a long time. But this essay, titled Boredom, mixes a seriously depressive outlook in general and a deep distrust of people. Much of that is completely warranted. By the end, you'll be ready to resign from the human race and maybe even contribute a few rubles to PETA. I've edited it heavily for time, and I'm sorry I can't read it in a Russian accent. With the advent of night, a fantastic city all of fire suddenly rises from the ocean into the sky. Thousands of ruddy sparks glimmer in the darkness on the black background of the sky, Shapely towers of miraculous castles, palaces, and temples. They intertwine in transparent, flaming patterns, which flutter and melt away in love with their own beauty. Strange thoughts fill the mind at the sight of this play of fire. In the halls of the palaces, in the radiant gleam of flaming mirth, strains of music float such as mortal ear has never heard. On the melodious current of their sounds... The best thoughts of the world are carried along like sailing stars. I see a huge cradle, marvelously wrought of golden tissue, upon the trembling bosom of the ocean. There at night rests the sun, but the sun of the day brings man nearer to the truth of life. Then the fiery magic castles are tall white buildings. The blue mist of the ocean vapors, mingles with the drab smoke of the metropolis across the harbor the city hums with its constant, insatiate, hungry roar, the strained sound agitating the air and soul, the careless bellow of iron, the melancholy wail of life driven by the power of gold, and the people go forth to the shore of the sea, where the beautiful white buildings stand and promise tranquility. The buildings huddle close together on a long, sandy strip of land, the sand glitters in the sun with a warm yellow gleam, and the buildings stand out on its velvety expanse like thin white silk embroidery. The effect is as of rich garments thrown carelessly on the bosom of the island by some bather before plunging into the waters. I turn my gaze wistfully upon this island. I long to nestle in its downy texture. This is Coney Island. From the very first moment of arrival at this city of fire, the eye is blinded. Everything whirls and dazzles and blends into a tempestuous ferment of fiery foam. The visitor is stunned. His consciousness is withered by the intense gleam. His thoughts are routed from his mind. He becomes a particle in the crowd of hundreds of thousands. People wander about, intoxicated and devoid of will. A dull white mist penetrates their brains. Greedy expectation envelops their souls. Everywhere, electric bulbs shed their cold, garish gleam. They shine on posts and walls, on window casings and cornices. They stretch in an even line along the high tubes of the powerhouse. They burn on all the roofs and prick the eye with the sharp needles of their indifferent sparkle. A man must make a great effort not to lose himself in the crowd, not to be overwhelmed by his amazement, an amazement in which there is neither transport nor joy. But if he succeeds in individualizing himself, he finds that these millions of fires produce a dismal, all-revealing light. Though they hint at the possibility of beauty, they everywhere discover a dull, gloomy ugliness. The city, magic and fantastic from afar, now appears an absurd jungle of straight lines of wood, a cheap, hastily constructed toy house for the amusement of children. Dozens of white buildings, monstrously diverse, not one with even the suggestion of beauty. They're built of wood and smeared over with peeling white paint, which gives them the appearance of suffering with the same skin disease. The high turrets and low colonnades extend in two dead-even lines, insipidly pressing upon each other. Everything is stripped naked by the dispassionate glare, and nowhere a shadow. Each building stands there like a dumbfounded fool with wide-open mouth. Inside is a cloud of smoke and the dark figures of the people who eat, drink, and smoke. The monotonous hissing of the arc lights fills the air. The sounds of music, the cheap notes of the orchestrions, and the thin, continuous sputtering of the sausage-frying counters. All these sounds mingle in in an importunate hum, and if a human voice breaks into this ceaseless resonance, it's like a frightened whisper. Everything round about glitters insolently and reveals its own dismal ugliness. The soul is seized with a desire for a living, beautiful fire, a sublime fire, which should free the people from the slavery of a varied boredom. For this boredom deafens their ears and blinds their eyes. Children walk about, silent, with gapping mouths and dazzled eyes. They look around with such intensity, such seriousness, that the sight of them feeding their little souls upon this hideousness, which they mistake for beauty, inspires a pained sense of pity. Men's faces, all strangely like one another, are grave and immobile. The majority bring their wives and children along and feel that they are benefactors of their families because they provide not only bread but also magnificent shows They enjoy the tinsel, but too serious to betray their pleasure, they keep their thin lips pressed together and look from the corners of their screwed-up eyes like people whom nothing can astonish. Yet, under the mask of indifference, a strained desire can be detected to take in all the delights of the city. The men with the serious faces, smiling indifferently, and concealing the satisfied gleam of their sparkling eyes, seat themselves on the backs of the wooden horses and elephants of the merry-go-round, and, dangling their feet, wait with nervous impatience for the keen pleasure of flying along the rails. With a whoop they dart up to the top, with a whistle they descend again. After this stirring journey, they draw their skin tight on their faces again and go to taste of new pleasures. The amusements are without number. There, on the summit of an iron tower, two long white wings rock slowly up and down. At the end of each wing hang cages, and in these cages are people. When one of the wings rises heavily toward the sky, the faces of the occupants of the cages grow sadly serious. They all look in round-eyed silence at the ground receding from them. In the cages of the other wing, Then carefully descending, the faces of the people are radiant with smiles. Joyous screams are heard, which strangely remind one of the merry yelp of a puppy let to the floor after he's been held up in the air by the scruff of his neck. Everything rocks and roars and bellows and turns the heads of the people. They're filled with contented ennui, their nerves are racked by an intricate maze of motion and dazzling fire. The ennui, which issues from under the pressure of self-disgust, seems to turn and turn in a slow circle of agony. It drags tens of thousands of uniformly dark people into its somber dance and sweeps them into a willless heap, as the wind sweeps the rubbish of the thick, dirty odor of grease. Hell is very badly done. It would arouse disgust in a man of even modest demands. It is represented by a cave with stones thrown together in chaotic masses. The cave is penetrated by a reddish darkness. On one of the stones sits Satan clothed in red. Grimaces distort his lean, brown face. He rubs his hands contentedly as a man who's doing a good business. He must be very uncomfortable on his perch, a paper stone which cracks and rocks. Inside the buildings, the people are also seeking pleasure, and here, too, all look serious. The amusement offered is educational. The people are shown hell with all the terrors and punishments that await those who have transgressed the sacred laws created for them. Hell is constructed of paper mache and painted dark red. Everything in it is on fire, paper fire, and it is filled with tongues of fire made of red paper. A girl is there who has just bought a new hat. She's trying it on before a mirror, happy and contented. But a pair of little fiends, apparently very greedy, steal up behind her and seize her under the armpits. She screams, but it is too late. The demons put her into a long, smooth trough which descends tightly into a pit in the middle of the cave. The girl, with her mirror and her new hat, goes down into the pit, lying on her back in the trough. A young man has drunk a glass of whiskey. Instantly the devils clutch him, and down he goes through that same hole in the floor of the platform. The atmosphere in hell is stifling, The demons are insignificant-looking and feeble. Apparently they're greatly exhausted by their work and irritated by its sameness and evident futility. They fling the sinners unceremoniously into the trough like logs of wood. A girl extracts some coins from her companion's purse. Forthwith the spies, the demons, attack her to the great satisfaction of Satan who sits there snickering and dangling his crooked legs joyfully. The demons frown angrily up at the idle fellow and spitefully hurl into the jaws of the burning pit everybody who enters hell by chance, on business or out of curiosity. The audience looks on these horrors in silence with serious faces. The hall is dark, some sturdy fellow with curly hair Holds forth in a lugubrious voice while he points to the stage. He says that if the people do not want to be the victims of Satan with the red garments and the crooked legs, they should not kiss girls to whom they are not married because the girls might become bad women. Women outcasts ought not to steal money from the pockets of their companions and people should not drink whiskey or beer or other liquors that arouse the passions. They should not visit saloons. He talks monotonously, wearily. He himself does not seem to believe in what he was told to preach. You involuntarily apostrophize the owners of this corrective amusement for sinners. Gentlemen, if you wish morality to work on men's souls with the force of castor oil, you ought to pay your preachers more. At the conclusion of the terrible story, a nauseatingly beautiful angel appears from a corner of the cavern. He hangs on a wire and moves across the entire cave, holding a wooden trumpet pasted over with gilt paper between his teeth. On catching sight of him, Satan dives like a fish into the pit after the sinners. A crash is heard. The paper stones are hurled down, and the devils run off cheerfully to rest from their labor. The curtain drops. The public rises and leaves. Some venture to laugh. The majority, however, seem absorbed in reflection. Perhaps they think, if hell is so nasty, it isn't worth sinning. They proceed further. In the next place, they are shown the world beyond the grave. It is large and also made of papier-mâché. Here, the souls of the dead, hideously garbed, wander in confusion. You may wink at them, but you may not touch them. They must feel greatly bored in the dusk of the subterranean labyrinth, shut up within rugged walls in a cold, damp atmosphere. Some souls cough disagreeably. Others silently chew tobacco, spitting yellow saliva on the ground. One soul, leaning in a corner against the wall, smokes a cigar. When you pass by them, they look into your face with colorless eyes. They're hungry, these poor souls and many of them evidently suffer from rheumatism. The public looks at them silently. It breathes in the moist air and feels its soul with dismal ennui, which extinguishes thought as a wet, dirty cloth extinguishes the fire of a smoldering coal. In another place again, the flood is displayed. The flood, you know, was brought on to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their sins. And all the spectacles in this city have one purpose, to show the people how they will be punished after death for their sins, to teach them to live upon earth humbly, and to obey the laws. Everywhere the one commandment is repeated, don't, for it helps to crush the spirit of the majority of the public, the working people. But it's necessary to make money, and in the commodious corners of the bright city, as everywhere in the world, depravity laughs disdainfully at hypocrisy and falsehood. Of course, the depravity is hidden, and of course, it's a wearying, tiresome depravity, but it also is for the people. It is organized as a paying business, as a means to extract their earnings from the pockets of the people. The people are always constrained. As yet, they have never acted as free men. So they permit the enslavement of their bodies and their souls, for this alone are they to blame. They pour in thick streams between two lines of dazzlingly illuminated houses, and the houses snap them up with their hungry jaws. On the right, they're intimidated by the terrors of eternal torture. Do not sin, they are warned. Sin is dangerous. On the left, In the spacious dancing hall, women slowly waltz about, and here everything cries out to them, Sin, for sin is pleasant. Blinded by the gleam of the light, lured by the cheap but glittering sumptuousness, intoxicated by the noise, they turn about in a slow dance of weary boredom. To the left they go willingly and blindly to sin, to the right to hear exhortations to holy living. This aimless straying stupefies the people. But for that very reason, it's profitable to both the traders in morality and the vendors of depravity. Life is made for the people to work six days in the week, sin on the seventh, and pay for their sins, confess their sins, and pay for the confession. The fires hiss like thousands of excited serpents, and the people slowly wind about in the dazzling cobwebs of the amusement halls. Without haste, without a laugh or a smile on their smoothly shaven faces, they lazily crowd through all the doors, stand long before the animal cages, and chew tobacco and spit. In one huge cage, a man chases Bengal tigers with shots from a revolver and the merciless blows of a thin whip. The handsome beasts, maddened by terror, blinded by the lights, deafened by the music and revolver shots, fling themselves about between the iron bars and snort and roar. Their green eyes flash, their lips tremble, they gnash their teeth in fury, and menacingly raise, now one forepaw, now the other but the man keeps shooting straight into their eyes, and the loud report of the blank cartridges and the smart blows of the whip drive one powerful, supple creature into a corner of the cage. The imprisoned beast sinks down for a moment and looks on with dazed eyes, his serpentine tail writhing nervously. The elastic body rolls itself into a firm ball and twitches, ready to leap into the air to bury its claws in the flesh of the man with the whip, rend him, annihilate him. The hind legs of the animal quiver like a spring. His neck stretches. The green irises flash, blood-red sparks. The watchful, waiting eyes that blaze in the vindictive countenance confront beyond the bars the dim, coppery blotch of a thousand colorless eyes set in uniform yellow faces, coldly expectant. The face of the crowd, terrible in its dead immobility, waits. The crowd, too, hankers for blood, and it waits not out of vengefulness, but from curiosity. The tiger draws his head in his shoulders and looks out sadly with his wide-open eyes. His whole body sinks back softly, and his skin wrinkles up, as if an icy rain had fallen on a surface heated by the passion for vengeance. The man runs about the cage, shoots his pistol and cracks his whip, and shouts like a madman. His shouts are intended to hide his painful dread of the animals. The crowd regards the capers of the man and waits in suspense for the fatal attack. They wait. Unconsciously, the primitive instinct is awakened in them. They crave fight, They want to feel the delicious shiver produced by the sight of two bodies intertwining, the splutter of blood and pieces of torn, steaming human flesh flying through the cage and falling on the floor. They want to hear the roar, the cries, the shrieks of agony. But the brain of the throng is already infected by the poison of various prohibitions and intimidations. Desiring blood, the crowd is afraid. It wishes yet does not wish. In this struggle within itself, it experiences a sharp gratification. It lives. The man has frightened all the animals. The tigers softly withdraw into a corner of the cage, and the man, all in a sweat, satisfied that he has remained alive that day, bows to the coppery face of the crowd as to an idol. He endeavors to conceal the tremor on his pale lips with a smile. The crowd shouts and claps its hands and sighs. Is it relief or is it regret? Having delighted their eyes with the picture of man's rivalry with beasts, the human animals go in search of other amusements. There is a circus. The music rends the air. The orchestra is poor. The musicians worn out. The sounds of the brass instruments dray about as if they limped, as if no even course were possible for them. Even the circus horses, who are used to everything, turn cautiously aside and nervously twitch their sharp ears, as if they wanted to shake off the rasping tin sounds. This music of the poor for the amusement of slaves puts strange notions into your head. You would like to tear the very largest brass trumpet from the musician's hand and blow into it with all the power of your lung, long and loud, so terribly that all the people would run from this prison, driven by the fury of the mad sounds. Not far from the orchestra is a cage with bears. One of them, a stout brown bear with little shrewd eyes, stands in the middle of the cage and shakes his head deliberately. Apparently, he thinks... All this is sensible only if it's contrived to blind, deafen, and mutilate the people. Then, of course, the end justifies the means. But if people come here to be amused, I have no faith in their sanity. Two other bears sit opposite each other as if playing chess. Another is busy raking up straw in a corner of the cage. He knocks his claws against the bar's. He seems to expect nothing from this life and has made up his mind to go to bed. The animals arouse the keenest interest. The waiting eyes of the spectators follow them steadily and minutely. The people appear to be searching for something long forgotten in the free and powerful movements of the beautiful bodies of the lion and panther. They thrust sticks through the gratings, and silently experimenting, prod the animals' stomachs and sides and tickle their paws, and look to see what will happen. The animals that have not yet become familiarized with the character of human beings are angry. They thrust their paws against the bars and roar. This pleases the spectators. Protected from the beast by the iron grill and assured of their safety, the people look calmly into the bloodshot eyes and smile contentedly, but the majority of the animals pay no heed to the people. When they receive a blow with a stick or are spat upon, they slowly rise and, without looking at the insulter, retire into a distant corner of the cage. There, the lions, tigers, panthers, and leopards couch their beautiful, powerful bodies. In the darkness, their round irises burn with the green fire of scorn for mankind, and the people, glancing at them once again, walk away saying, uninteresting. A brass band plays desperately at a semicircular entrance, a kind of dark, wide-open, gapping jaw within which the backs of chairs stare like a row of teeth. In front of the musicians is a post to which a pair of monkeys are tied by a thin chain It is a mother and her child. The child presses closely against the mother's breast and its long, thin hands with their little fingers cross over the mother's back. The mother encircles the baby in a firm embrace with one arm. The other is cautiously extended forward, its fingers nervously crooked, ready to seize, to scratch, to strike. The mother's strained, wide-open gaze clearly bespeaks impotent despair, the anguished expectation of unavoidable insult and injury, melancholy rage. The child has nestled its cheek against the mother's breast and looks slantwise at the people with cold terror, motionless, hopeless. Apparently, it has been filled with dread from the first day of its life, and the dread as frozen and congealed for all days to come. Displaying her white teeth, the mother, without for a second removing the hand that clasps the child of her flesh, continually rebuffs the canes, the umbrellas, the hands of the onlookers, her tormentors. The spectators are many. They are all white-skinned savages, men and women in straw hats and hats with feathers, It is fearfully amusing for all of them to see how skillfully the monkey mother shields her child from the blows they aim at its little body. The mother quickly turns on a smooth space the size of a plate. She risks falling any second under the feet of the crowd, but she tirelessly repels everything that threatens to come in contact with her child. Her arm quickly cuts the air like a lash. But the onlookers are so many, and every one desires so much to pinch, to strike, to pull the monkey by the tail, or by the chain around its neck, that sometimes she misses. Her eyes blink thoughtlessly, and radiant wrinkles of injury and distress appear around her mouth. The child's hands squeeze her bosom. It clasps her so firmly that his hands are almost hidden in her thin hair. It has sunk down motionless, and its eyes stare fixedly at the coppery blotch of the faces all around. Sometimes one of the musicians turns the stupid brass bellow of his instrument upon the monkey and overwhelms the animal with a deafening noise. The little baby timidly clasps the mother's body still harder, shows its teeth, and looks at the musician sharply. The people laugh and nod their heads approvingly to the musician. He is satisfied, and a minute later repeats the feat. Among the spectators are women, some apparently mothers, but no one utters a word of protest against this cruel fun. All are satisfied. Man is nurtured on terror, so he endeavors to inspire others with terror of himself, but he arouses only disgust, the poor unfortunate wretch. This torture continues through the whole long night, and part of the morning. Alongside the orchestra is the cage of an elephant. He is an elderly gentleman with a worn, glossy skin. He looks at the public, and good, wise animal that he is, he thinks, of course these scoundrels, swept together by the dirty broom of tedium, are capable of making sport even of their profits. So I've heard old elephants tell, but I'm sorry for the monkey anyway. I've heard also that human beings, like jackals and hyenas, sometimes tear one another to pieces. But that's no consolation to the monkey. You look at the pair of eyes in which is depicted the grief of a mother powerless to protect her child, and at the eyes of the baby in which the deep, cold dread of man has congealed into immobile rigidity. You look at the people capable of deriving amusement from the torture of a living creature, and turning to the monkey, you say, Little beast, forgive them. They know not what they do. They will become better in time. Then, when night comes, a fantastic magic city, all of fire, suddenly blazes up from the ocean. Without consuming, it burns long against the dark background of the sky, its beauty mirrored in the broad, gleaming bosom of the sea. In the glittering gossamer of its fantastic buildings, tens of thousands of grey people, like patches on the ragged clothes of a beggar, creep along with weary faces and colourless eyes. Mean panderers to debased tastes unfold the disgusting nakedness of their falsehood, the naivete of their shrewdness, the hypocrisy and insatiable force of their greed. The cold gleam of the dead fire bears the stupidity of it all. Its pompous glitter rests upon everything round about the people. But the precaution has been taken to blind the people. They drink in the vile poison with silent rapture. The poison contaminates their souls. Boredom whirls about in an idle dance. One thing alone is good in the garish city. You can drink in hatred to your soul's content. Hatred sufficient to last throughout life. Hatred of the power of stupidity. The complete article in PDF form is available on the podcast webpage.
4: Hard to tell you, I find it hard to take when people run in circles. It's a very, very mad world. Mad world. Children waiting for the day they.
0: The sickening thud of the headsman's axe. The deadly hum and sizzle of the electric chair. The rush and slither as crocodiles swarm over their tied-down victim. Hear them and see them in this exhibit housed in a single trailer. Brill's plan for an exhibit of 14 historical methods of execution, a self-contained walk-through horror show that can be built economically and worked easily by one person. The side of the trailer can be your own prominent weatherproof banner, 11 pages of drawings and detailed descriptions on paper for just $7, or a PDF file emailed to you for just $4. The link is on the podcast page. Order it now from goodmagic.com.
5: She runs away and I stand still Just watching the way girl can feel her like a stone Says, leave me alone the sun falls down on the strand. Fools and clowns, like I know I am. Let the girls slip away like a wind up away. Time's a waste, down. yeah she says. Summer nights, edge yeah, of the city, waving bye 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 and smiling sweetly. Tell me last dollar chance Pretty girl and dance The whole world's hopping On the tilt of the world. Flashbulb's popping got in mid-twelve Carnival tonight Trade the darkness for some light Time's waste wasting Yeah, she says Summer nights yeah, the edge of the city saying of me so we lay do you wanna dance gotta take my Take some wine from my mouth, do you wanna stretch out in the sound? Get in my car and drives out, do you wanna know what it would be like? Do you wanna come and find out? Do you wanna dance, do you wanna chance? Do you wanna dance? Couples in love, the darkness away, and the night to the day. Time's a wasting here yeah, she says Summer nights, on the edge of the city, waving bye 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 to me, so sweetly.
1: Stay in peace yeah. Open our eyes Open our eyes He has given us Hills and mountains He has given us. Land and clothing and shelter from the storm and rain Oh when I finally realize Oh when I finally realize When I finally realize When I finally realize When I finally finally
0: BalletCast is produced by Wayne Kaiser for Blue Ridge Entertainment under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. That means you can keep it, copy it, share it with a friend, just tell them where it came from, don't change it, and don't sell it. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe at BalletCast.com. And please also see our web sales and support site, GoodMagic.com. Visit us, link to us, subscribe to the podcast, and most importantly, enjoy. Thanks for riding. Please exit to your left. For one who has not lived even a single lifetime, you are a wise man.